1983, something was happening in the Western States. The birth of a training course focused entirely on the musical theatre. There was no music theatre education in the country, and after starting the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts, Dr Jeff Gibbs made the creation of the course his next goal. For nearly 20 years, Dennis Follington was on the staff of this much-sought musical theatre BA at WAPA. The course has graduated students including Meow Meow, Eddie Perfect, Lisa McCune, Rodney Dobson, Carmel Dean and Simon Gleeson. In 1997, Dennis took the helm and steered the course for another three years as head of the department. The course garnered a national reputation for producing graduates who were prepared, focused, knowledgeable and dependable. Whopper graduates walked into the country's commercial musicals and proved themselves adept at television and plays too. Impressed with the success of the course at Whopper, he was lured by De La Salle College in Singapore to build a music theatre course of their own, attracting students from around the world. Stages spoke to Dennis about the essentials of such an education, the history of the course at Whopper, and his first cast recording of a Broadway show. Do you remember your first cast recording? I think it was Funny Girl. Mine was Funny Girl. An aunt gave it to me. Um, well, and I, I listened to it and it changed my life. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? What's that about? Well, it is. But but I always rem- I remember it so vividly. And, and, and curiously, you know, that I found it in later years, you know, the thing that, that most struck me that I always carry with me is that extraordinary overture. Mm. And then, of course, in, in, in hindsight, you know, when you read things, they say, well, you know, the three greatest overtures were Funny Girl, Gypsy and Candide. Yeah, yeah. But it, I remember and I thought, yeah, that's what those overtures did. They just sucked you right in and you were staying there. You got a taste of... You did. The score. You got a taste of the score and all of that. And we even sort of, you know, learned to accept Henry Street. Um, that's that's going to play up on the mice. Sorry. You're tapping Sorry. your troubles away. Um, let's come up here. I saw that production in London two years ago, Funny Girl, and was so disappointed. And I don't know whether it was because the cast recording and Streisand was so um, imprinted on my psyche. Um, but that's the other thing about, I think, the English doing American musicals. They seem a bit limp. Well, I have a real issue with that, and I've had this, I was going to say argument, I think it's discussion about it, and I... And it seems to me that there's... And it comes up across, I think, even now with things that I've seen, even as recently as that Follies movie uh, uh, or film of the National Theatre, is that they there's an air to me where they seem to want to legitimise the musical piece. So it's like they've got to search out more gravitas attached to it and I think in doing so for me they drain a lot of the joy out of it it becomes like a serious intent and you know there are certainly plenty of serious musicals and they have those elements about them but the the bits tend yes to want to be 
just a bit serious about it. So the performance is quite often for me a bit overwrought. And, you know, I mean, um, you've got to find that the books are usually like a fairly wide brush stroke. So you've got to find that, but find the honesty in the characters. And I just, and I think it's probably why there's problems finding, you know, really important but also interesting British musicals. They tend to either be incredibly twee or um, uh, overtly serious, like, you know, the adaptation of, of Les Mis and that, which, incidentally, the Australian production that I saw the original one, I absolutely adored, but I thought it was probably a bit long. And I thought if that song comes back one more time. But I thought it was, and I think that's probably the thing that they most excel in. But having said that, I was lucky enough years ago in being in New York to see that uh, American production of the Nick Heitner production of uh, Carousel, which I think still is one of the great theatre evenings for me. I mean, I think it was one of the most remarkable reimaginations of musical. And, of course, that word these days sends terror through me because, you know, it's... Um, reimagine means I'm just going to put my stamp and I'll do whatever I want as long as they are applauding the director but that uh, but just generally I've just I've never really really satisfied with uh, with with British productions of musicals and I think also that sort of left in the dryer too long productions that they tend to be doing where everything's reduced and you think well do I really want to see Titanic with four people you know and I think it sometimes you just does a disservice to the score and heaven knows in New York even now they're cutting orchestras down and you know so it was great a couple of years ago to see On the Town with the full orchestra and you know and being able to look like it was polished up and yet faithful in style and in every way to the original and yet you felt you weren't seeing a musty old recreation so um, it's difficult but um uh, but it, but it is difficult. What, getting back to what you're saying about the early thing when you first heard "Funny Girl" and Streisand and all of that, and I think that particular show is probably why it's never really been done again uh, on Broadway. Anything is because it comes with such a load, and although I guess you could say that about Gypsy with Ethel Merman, there's something about the character of Rose that that is like, I think, great plays. It's open to interpretation. But I think Funny Girl is is a real hybrid thing. And uh, and I think unless you've really got the right person, because I don't think you've got so much as much wiggle room as you have with Rose. I think Rose can be, you know, lots of things. Uh, but I'm not sure that you can get away too far away from who Fanny Bryce really is. So and and also, you know, I think to be doing small productions of something like that that celebrates Zegfield Follies, and you want to do it with four showgirls. Well, you know, um, unless you can just get rid of all the Zegfield numbers and just focus on Fanny Bryce, which is ridiculous. Why would you do Funny Girl if you're going to do that? But you're going to tell that story. You need the the opulence. You Absolutely, need... we need to be in that world. Yeah. You just you know, it's no point because because and even more so now because. You have very few people that remember or know what that sort of productional theatre was like. Uh, and so, you know, people could imagine or say, oh, sorry, I was used to see, you know, Follies or I saw whatever. Well, now it's such a distant memory. 
and because of what musical shows and just general entertainment have become you just don't have that lavishness anymore and so people have got no point of reference really so it's it seems like a weird choice to do in as i think a lot of those things ragtime all of that to be reducing them down to that i think is particularly when they're epic stories i mean titanic and and um ragtime particularly um it's not like you can think we get it down because in essence of it's a bit like um Sunset Boulevard, not one of my favourite musicals, but in the end of the day, there are only four people you're interested in. Mm, mm. So at point you think, well, if you want Is to cut those songs, yeah. yeah, I could I could be happy with those people like it was in the movie. Mm. Um, but I don't think you can say the same about Ragtime uh, or any of those big musicals, and I don't think you can say the same about... Um, um, well, even the Kaja Fall, which had that mm. celebrated revival recently mm. with Douglas Hodge and Kelsey Grammer, mm. um, and it was reimagined and it was enjoyable. But I know there's something about La Kaja Fall yeah. and that original production and the opulence and, the, and, the, and those costumes. It, it was, and, and yet I feel, and I've always felt with La Kaja Fall, and and again, it's not one of my favourite musicals. But I've always actually imagined, it, which is unusual because I've just been saying the reverse, that if you really did reimagine as a tiny small thing I think it could be done but you would need to do something like where you would have all of the numbers in the club possibly lip sync like pre-record them and lip sync them and have everything else done with uh, a bass an accordion and something so that becomes small and then we get this big sound in there and you could think well we can do it with four performers and Jaja in that case possibly but you would have to then re like drive in a different direction you can't you'd have to let go completely of the um, original production mm. uh, so it's um, I think I think in the best and there have been very few for me that work for of reimagination and it is a total reimagination. It's not just let's set it here or let's, you know, let's set it on the moon or something or we'll do it with a three-piece band and two people. You know, it's sort of like saying, can we do a reduced production of I Do, I Do, and you do it with one of the couple and just call it I Do. <laughs> I know you grew up in Perth. Mm, I did. Was it a musical family? My mother played piano quite badly um, and... Uh, uh, and I just at some point was actually learned, uh, decided when I was about 12 that I would like to learn piano. So I went to a local piano teacher and seemed to be able to play by ear from the moment I sat down at the piano. So I never practiced properly and I would go back and just try and sight read it all. Um, and then uh, one of my younger brothers is a drummer who has worked in rock and roll bands and blues bands all his life. Do you um, have many siblings? Two, two, two brothers. Right. Um, so yes so my, uh, one of my other brothers has earned his living as a musician so I guess it's somewhere in the DNA it came in um, what about music education at school did that figure highly no not really we had sort of choirs um, at odd times but certainly not anywhere near as structured as it's become now and they would be very very simple things um and I found that, you know, that once I 
could play piano, I was asked to be playing for things, uh, which was uh, which was good, particularly if it got me out of sport. Um, and so yes, no, nothing where I had a, a siblings or parents that were serious musicians. So yeah, I suppose it is DNA. Uh, how long did you continue the piano lessons? Did you do all your exams? Oh, no, didn't no? do any of that. I just, you know, I just, I guess you could say I faked it a bit. And, but do I you had an aptitude. Do you remember your piano teacher? I do. What was her name? Um, Mrs. Name? McCormack. Right. She used to hit me over the knuckles, only with a pencil, thank God. <laughs> um, because um, she'd say, you're not reading the music. Which you probably you. weren't, were you? Could well, you could I you read music at that age? I, so I could. I somehow could do it immediately, which was a, a great disservice because I could always play by ear and sort of seem to be able to read music very easily because I took shortcuts. So, the, you know, the chooks come home to roost at the end when you've got to then ultimately, like being at Whopper and having to study very difficult music and difficult scores that I had to work three times as hard, you know, because I hadn't sort of done all of their things that... Um, you do to build up those sorts of skills and I look I freely acknowledged it and, you know uh, that I was never a great sight reader or technician in that way but somehow along with the whole thing of playing by ear which was a great advantage in a lot of cases um, was that along with that came an understanding of the style of what you were playing in be it a song that I was playing so you know, when I did come to work with students in musical theatre, you know, whatever the show was, then I knew exactly what the style should be and how, you know, stylistically how it should be played and performed and sound. So what were the genres you were listening to when you were growing up? You know, in your teen years, were you... Uh... Well, teen years, pretty much everything on the radio because radio at that time included... Oh, well, there was ABC Classical Radio, which my parents would play a lot. But in the other pop music things they were all so they were playing a lot of a wide variety of things so I grew up um, listening to a lot of that that early music you know at that point so it was a much more diverse uh, collection of music on commercial radio stations than there is now where it's very very geared to you know a narrower uh, sort of genre of music I suppose so you find whatever we want to listen to. But of course all of that's disappearing now because you've got Spotify and all of that. So mm-hmm. it becomes what what what's happened, I think, over in all those things, it's become reduced to specialization. So unfortunately, you know, a lot of young people are not exposed to other even just talking about pop music now, are not exposed to things that they're not expecting. They're all, this is what I like to listen to. I like to listen to rap or I like to listen to techno or whatever. And you find that and that's what you listen they to. They can open up that box and just yeah, focus exa- on Yeah, and that's all it is. Rather than... That's all it is, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what about bands? Did you... Were you in a school band? Did you uh, join up with friends? No, and, no, they no? Ne- there was, the, we didn't really have school bands at all in that case. But when I was still in high school um, and then sort of left that I sort of got into bands then but mostly bands that were working sort of uh, weddings and those sorts of things so I was playing that sort of music and even sort of 40s big bands and all of that and and then I subsequently got into another band um, that played a mixture of those we did weddings and we did dances and all of that so it was everything from sort of big band swing stuff 
to rock and roll, so uh, which I enjoyed very, very much. Uh, and uh, where well, I got my first taste of working with a singer, which which then became what I most loved and still most love in my life is to work with singers. I was never ever interested in being a solo musician, and uh, so. so- in, in a coaching scenario or a cabaret format? Well, well, all of that. I mean, it's why I loved working at Wapper with, you know, because it was about vocal music and that and lyrics and all of that. And, um, you know, my greatest joys, I think, not uh, apart from Wapper, was working with singers in cabaret shows and things like that. I just, I guess I just like vocal music rather than instrumental and so um, maybe I should have at some point been one of those singers like Steve Ross or Michael Feinstein that I sit at the piano and sing for myself but but no that was almost always my great joy was working with singers and I still do I still vocal music is what I most listen to I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages a podcast that interviews creatives and artists about their careers, their processes and what matters to them. Artists like dancer Paul Saliba, who fondly recalls one of his heroes, the legendary Sir Robert Helpman. Totally and utterly individual, bigger than life. Uh, every, even a taxi driver knew who Sir Robert Helpman was. Right, yes. Such, I mean, he was fame. so incredibly famous. You know, like, well, he was responsible for bringing Uraev to Australia to, and for us to get that production of Don Q and make that movie in the in the hangar at, in Melbourne at the airport, you know, to do that. Uh, he was he was really the one, probably one of the most fabulously individual person I'd ever met. So at that stage in your youth, was, was music your prime occupation or did you have a day job? No, I had a day job for a while and then I became a musician in bands and, we, and earned enough money with that, that that was my sole occupation. And that's what I did. So I virtually worked at music. And this is just in Western Australia? Yeah, yeah. yeah in Perth. And I, look, I was lucky that the... And band I worked with the second one, which which was an eight-piece band including a singer, that we did you know most of the sort of the school balls and the weddings and all of that. So so earned when I said substantial money, I mean certainly a really good living. And uh, what was, was the band a, called? I think uh, what was it called? JT and the Jasmine. Who and was I'd it? taken over. It was sort of formed, and then I came in as pianist to take over from the original. Creator. And then it, we just added instruments to it and it just became very, very popular. We used to do pub gigs on a Saturday afternoon where everyone would get raging drunk, including us. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> and I did that until I left Perth and went to um, Canada. So why, why did you leave Perth? You you wanted to see the oh, world? Time, to, time get to get out? Time yeah. to get there out. There comes a time, doesn't there? There yeah. does indeed yeah. come a time. Not not Perth, just generally, well, in, just generally. in the place oh, that you absolutely. grow up. Yeah, yeah. And at that point in Australia, and particularly Perth, it was a very small uh, <clears throat> and very conservative. And though I'd lived for short periods in Melbourne and Sydney before that, I just decided to leave and just left Perth. had really no idea where I was going, apart from the fact that I was heading for Toronto because I had a couple of Australian friends who were living there then and my intention was that I would just 
get to Toronto and visit them and then decide where I wanted to move on to. But um, when I arrived, they were about to change the uh, immigration laws there, whereby anyone that was in the country at that point could apply for landed immigrant status. And after that date, you would have to apply from your country of origin. So I thought I was a chance to get a job and earn a bit of money, and so I applied, was um, uh, got landed immigrant status, and then got a job. But then, of course, you get an apartment, you get furniture, and suddenly you're no longer uh, movable, as it were. So I ended up staying in Toronto for eight years, eight fantastic years. But I didn't um, play piano at all. I got a job in the music department of the Toronto Reference Library which was one of the great joys of my life. I just had the first fantastic time because I'm... Was that handling um, scores and... Scores, recordings and that. And because it was a reference library, um, there was very little that circulated apart from scores and chamber, um, you know, music. You'd, you'd get um, parts for... With, with the parts in... And also a few scores and things, piano music that would circulate. But the, the rest of the collection, books and that, were all reference. So it was a major reference library, and uh, before computers, of course, it was card catalogues at that point. And uh, because I'm so obsessive about organisation, <laughs> I felt that I'd fallen in, into uh, uh, my chosen profession. And, because, and also because I was the only person there that knew anything apart from classical music, you know, I used to handle all of those questions on the phone or people that would come in and of course at those days before computers if kids at school were doing they were doing a project and they'd have to run who Elvis Presley or whoever they were they'd have to come into the library to find out so they were always passed on to me but then I also was given the job of um, creating a in the recordings of put in charge of um, building up the collection for jazz Canadian pop music and musical theatre. So, you know, they had the budget, so I would order every Broadway cast that was ever recorded. And scores, we had scores for all of those things. Um, And being close, you got down to New York quite regularly. Pretty much every second weekend. You just seeing that plane. Yeah. Broadway shows, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, what what were some of the, the shows which you recall that stand out for you now because of their brilliance or. Well, probably for several reasons. The thing that the show that stands out most was the original Follies. A, because it was the uh, first time I was in New York and I had friends who's, who's, who I'd gone to visit in Toronto said, we're going to New York and there's this show that we want to see called Follies. So I thought, right. So he played the CD. The, well, it wasn't CD, it was vinyl at that point. The cast recording, so we sort of all knew what it was. And so that was my first Broadway show. And the fact that the show itself is iconic uh, sort of has, you know, resonance for me. So it was um, it was pretty amazing. And I remember sitting there because in my experience prior to that was seeing musicals in Australia and seeing fantastic people doing them. But I remember halfway through Foley sitting there and it came through and thought, God, that sound just sound like the people on the recording. Of course, it, it hit me. They, that were. they actually, in fact, were the people <laughs> on the recording, and it was a pretty remarkable experience to see something like that. Um, and yes, so, so, so you're there at a time also when um, 
those great creators like Michael Bennett and Harold Prince oh, and Sondheim and Jerome Robbins are all at absolutely. their peak. I saw all of the, you know, at various times in New York, all of the Sondheim shows, <clears throat> those original casts from Follies to, um, uh, to what was the last one I saw? Oh, Sweeney Todd. And, and all of those Michael Bennett ballroom I saw, you know, the original chorus line, original Chicago, all of those things. But of course, it was the start of what they call the decline in Broadway. And I mean, let me tell you also, I saw some tripe that was there, some truly appalling things that, uh, you know, were almost laughable and they were so bad. But of course, as happens now, they just died and they were cast aside and something new moved in. Yeah. They become questions on a, at a trivia night. <laughs> they do question, and yeah, that I can quite often answer, you know. Yeah. So is that um, eight years the time when your your passion for music theatre really developed or ignited? Did you know much repertoire when you're in Perth? I somehow I was always interested in music in music, what I'd call then musicals, and certainly in Perth, you know, any of those shows that came. And J.C. Williamson's brought a lot of the shows, their Funny Girl with Jill Perriman and all of that. Uh, and I went to see them at least once, so I knew it as an art form. But it wasn't until, yes, being in New York and being at the library and that and seeing it as more than just what was on stage. It was like I was I was understanding more about it and understanding more about the book and, you know, production designs, those sorts of things. Uh, so, so, yes, that's when I understood more about what, what it was. Um, and listen to you know much more saw much more saw you know extraordinary performances of things so i had an idea of what a what a superbly conceived production and designed and what a book was and what an extraordinary performances were that i guess for anybody that's in anything not just musical theater but it sort of sets a benchmark and that's what it is and as i say that not everything was extraordinary but certainly um, the most of the time the people performing it the way it was designed and all of that were amazing it was just that maybe it was a bad idea maybe it was not a very good score or whatever but I think things like that you bit like science you know you just have to keep trying and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and that's part of the thrill of it and you know there are people that have created some of the great musicals that have gone on to do other things and think how could you possibly thought that would work but of course I suppose at some point you do think it's going to work so you returned to Perth was that because of WAPA or did you go back there no. and Dr Jeffrey Gibbs had uh, hatched a plan to, no, to begin that WAPA? Came back. No, I got to a stage where in after eight years in Toronto and I had just the best time and just loved it but my god after Perth, the winters you know, the first winter I remember waking up one day and they radio the weather forecast said the high for today is going to be minus 25. Oh dear. So, you know, I just, I was, it was beyond the concept of what I thought cold was and I had to learn to live through those. And I did for eight years and then I just reached a point where I just thought, I just actually want to live in a warmer climate. So I thought I'd go back to Perth and just I guess, and see my parents and see friends and um, just decide what to do from then. And I arrived back there and just happened to be um, 
in you know, gone to see something at the Playhouse Theatre there and was introduced to Nigel Rideout, who at that point was head of theatre at WAPA. And we were talking and he said to me, oh, he said, would you like to come and do some singing performance classes with the actors? And I said, sure. So I started doing that and I think probably there are many of those acting students that still bear the terror of having to get up and sing, um, which I completely understood. Uh, so it sta- that's how it started at Whopper. Uh, and once I was there, I did that for a year. Um, and, and then in the second year, uh, Jeff Gibbs, who was the um, dean of Whopper, was um, interested in a musical theatre course. And I had no idea whether there would be any market or whatever. But anyway, look, he got a committee together and decided to do that. And it had a first ill-fated year where it was they had some part-time students and I was still working with the acting students at that point. And anyway, so they decided that the format was not correct. So then advertised for staff uh, and I applied and uh, John Milson was appointed head and I was appointed lecturer. So then we started trying to carve out what we thought a musical theatre course was. And of course, unlike today, where you can go online or where the people know anyway, it was like we were inventing something something from the beginning. It was like getting a bit of marble and you think, well, I've got to chisel something out of this. Well, it was certainly the first uh, course in Australia. Absolutely. What about around the world? Uh, I guess in New York there would have been a few... Well, certainly in the States there had yeah. been, you know, um, musical... They'd been were certainly ahead of the curve in, in that respect. And that's why I think their performers and people are so far ahead of the game now because they've been at it for so long. Mm. And there still remains, you know, four or five top courses over there. But yes, there'd always been courses in musical theatre. But Not course, only performance, but writing as well. Oh, writing you know, as yeah, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but of course, because, because this was before the internet, you know, if you had managed to get an article in a theatre magazine that talked about it, but we had sort of none of that. So, so what you we're talking early eighties? It was I went back to Perth in eighties, so we're talking probably eighty three, eighty four, right, eighty three, and so Milson and I and Milson had worked a lot in opera and he'd done musicals and that and what I'd seen and done and we just essentially sat down and said, well, if you were actually going to train someone to do this what skills would they need and that's how we started and it originally started as a two-year associate diploma course and we knew pretty soon that that was nowhere near enough to train the sorts of people in the you know three disciplines that you need so we then had to apply and got accreditation for it to become a BA course a three-year course uh, which was certainly at least what we needed Uh, and then adapted it into a three-year course and then just set about auditioning. And, of course, if we thought we were functioning in a vacuum trying to decide what the course should be, who out there knew that there was a musical theatre course that you could, in fact, study at? So, of course, we were trying to then audition for something (laughs) that no one knew existed or knew they needed. So how did you get the word out there? Well... Uh, I mean, I have to to say at this point as to what I've always said, that 
you know, what Whopper is now, I think, owes an enormous debt to, to Dr. Jeff Gibbs. I mean, he was fearless in what he pushed through there. And also one of the things that he did at that time is that he wanted people teaching there that had been in the business or were still in the business. And so the teaching staff brought with them experience of working uh, in, in a practical sense. Uh, but he knew no fear at all. He would just bulldoze through things. And I think what Whopper is owes an enormous debt to him more so, I think, than anybody. And he supported us, you know, Milson and I, with this new course all along the way. And even when we had very few students and we selected very few people and um, he was supportive and said, you need to build it up and we need to find that. And so we did. We started with people that came in, and a lot of them with not terribly many skills. So we were working at a very rudimentary way. But over the years, as it started to get a name and people started to work in the business, of course, then we started to get people that would understand that if you want to audition and get into Whopper, you need a certain set of skills. Um, so, you know, uh, they would start preparing for the audition. So, uh, consequently, the standard of a lot of the people or the people we accepted in uh, rose. So you were getting, you know, uh, you didn't have to start with the very, very basics and everything. So what makes a good music theatre education? I mean, what, what aspects, what skills need to be covered? Well, certainly for musical theatre, you need the three fundamental ones. You need... Um, you need singing skills, of course, but you are along with singing skills, automatically should come music skills, which means that you should know your way around a score. And if you can't read a score, or you should be at least be able to note bash at the piano your harmony line, if you need be, and theory, so that you can look at something and know what diminuendo is, at a, even at a very basic level, because that, that just gives you tools. And then you certainly need a very, very strong acting component and improv and I was always fought for more and more and more acting skills there um, because I think if you know if you're dealing with words in a song it's like acting and if you if you're not going to pay attention to the lyrics then play an instrument um, and then the, of course the third one is dance there needs to be a higher level of that uh, so it was a matter of how do you actually get all of that into a day well eventually it became like classes starting at 8am and finishing at 6, which is pretty tough. And I think that anyone that survived that course could survive pretty much anything. So it quickly became the place to study. Hmm. Um, well, for a, lot, a long time it was a long the only time. place to study. Yes. And then the, by the time everyone else thought we'd like one of those courses and what can we do to get this up and going... We'd, of course, left the starting blocks and we were halfway down the track. But it was a talk of the industry, too. Everyone was of impressed course. by a Whopper graduate who came Absolutely. in to audition. And, you know, those original graduates like um, yeah. Rodney Dobson and Lara McKay mm. and Lisa McCune are mm. still working in the industry. And Absolutely. That, that must be incredibly satisfying. Well, it is incredibly satisfying. But I, I think the thing that, <clears throat> that you know, the, the whole Whopper, you know, that, that that was very impressive for directors audition you know music that wouldn't necessarily get you the role but what it would mean is that you were trained and if they thought you could do something you had the skills and the ability and the tenacity to get in there and work at what you needed to do so it was also along with what 
ever talents you presented in the audition room, it actually showed that you had actually been trained and that you had a set of skills that would allow you to discover things, you know, whatever it was, and 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 I guess achieve a level of skill, um, you know, beyond maybe what you had at that point, but you knew the, how to work, how to get to where you needed to do, and the process. Um, you talked about those the, the, the three mm. skills that... Um, that sort of you, you needed to include in the course. Um, but should a course be training triple threats? Isn't it isn't a double threat just as impressive? Well, I mean, there are very few who can master those three. Well, certainly, completely. you certainly find that that what we what we know and is commonly known as a triple threat. You certainly found many, many more of them in the states because you know these kids that are interested in performing are going to theatre camps you know twice a year they also start dancing from when they're about three or four they're also having singing lessons and that and there's a and it's an enormous country and they have a lot of community theatre so that you've got not just your major cities as you have in australia but you've got second and third tier cities that are of enormous size that have got theatre industries there so kids get the opportunity to work as they're growing up doing be it the king and I or whatever so they go through all of that but look I I think that you you say that you need to be a triple threat but the reality particularly in this country is certainly some people would leave musical theatre course at WAPA stronger dancers some would stronger actors some were stronger singers um but it meant that you had the ability on those things that you were, um, I, I suppose, sort of slightly deficient in, that you would actually work at them. And I think that's another thing that was great about the musical theatre course is that it it sort of humbled a lot of people because for virtually everybody that came in, there was always one of those areas that they needed to work a lot at. And so, you know, if you thought if you like a lot of the women that would come in, had done a lot of dance from when they were three or four, so they were quite skilled. But, of course, then in improv and acting and and piano, keyboard, suddenly they weren't the best in the class. And so it rotated a bit there, and some people were more adept in acting classes and improv classes, and others would feel very, very exposed by it. So it was, it was good, and it showed everyone that... It, that, that everyone had a turn of being in a class where someone would say, oh, yeah, well, she's great in dance class, but, you know, she really is a bit embarrassed in improv. Keep up to date with the latest guests on Stages by following us on Instagram at Stages Podcast Pete or like our Facebook page, Stages. There you'll be able to see the faces of those I've chatted with and some further background information. Hear guests like Tony Lamont talk about the time that she was offered the chance to be the first female host of a Tonight Show in the world. So they decided to give me the Monday night and the new young guy that was working with Graham, Bert Mutant, got the Thursday night because I'd been successful on the... And we didn't realise until later that, because I didn't think about it, I mean, you, you don't think when you get those things about who else is doing the Tonight Show in the world, you don't think of those things. And guess who the next person was? My sister, Helen Reddy. 
The thing I found about the course was that it also uh, taught you creativity and the need to recognise that there's going to be occasions when you're going to have to create your own work. Absolutely. Um, so I think that's was a wonderful aspect of, of completing the um, Oh, of course. It, it, well, it was vitally important. And I think, I think at various times throughout the course, you know, I think Milson and I, and look at various times without trying to be negative about it, would say, look, you know, it's a tough industry. And I, I have to admit that I had extraordinary admiration for people that wanted to be performers. Uh, and I remember someone quoting many, many years ago to me, someone at Whopper, and saying that, you know, that if, that, that if someone says, um, I want to be an actor or I want to be a performer, you say, well, no, no, the thing is you have, what you need to say is I have to be a performer, I have to be an actor. You've got to have that hunger. Because it's going to be really, really tough. And while you might luck into productions as soon as you get out because you're, you know, sure, sort of your new blood in that, you know, and then you're searching for something else to do after that. So it takes tenacity to do that. But we, so we always encouraged people to be very creative. And part of it was that there was always a self-devised piece done at the end of first year. And in later years, when we had people like um, um, Peter Ross, Matthew Frank, and also Eddie Perfect and that, that were doing some writing, where at all possible, if we could give over Encourage one of the production sh- slots mm. with second years, for them to get get the piece on its feet and see what was happening. It was, I think, beneficial, certainly for the writers, but also for students to actually have new works because the, the issue with musical theatre is quite often you can, you know, listen to an original cast recording of someone re- singing the song and then, of course, people tend to reproduce it or try to, whereas if you've got a new work, there's no template at all. You've actually got to create that. So mm. it was mm. beneficial in all ways. I guess prospective um, students who were auditioning to, to get into the course saw it as a way of, of becoming a performer and, you know, that certainly was a, a focus. But, um, you know, the course also graduated, um, as well as musical theatre performers, unique talents like Eddie Perfect, as you, as you just mentioned, and Meow Meow, mm-hmm. composers and directors like Dean Bryant, Matthew Frank, James Miller, Matthew Lee Robinson, mm-hmm. and producers and administrators like Tim Lawson, Nicole Stinton, Jared Carlin, and, mm-hmm. and, and Peter Ross. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's quite surprising, or perhaps not surprising, that the graduates also find work in the music theatre industry, not necessarily as performers, what was it about the course that perhaps um, allowed opportunities for those graduates or skills? Well, I think because because um, WAPA was um, self-contained in as much as it had a course for you know musicians, which was part of the conservat- conservatorium, but also a stage management course, sound and lighting and design, and so they were exposed to how you know that that the performer is not the only person like there are a lot of people that go into putting this on stage and and I also think that a lot of people when they get as performers realize that a they just don't want to keep going to those auditions and some people just you know that sort of that um, rejection gets them down People think, oh, no, I just don't enjoy it as much as I thought I would. But I think having been involved in, from, like, rehearsals through texts and productions and all of that, and then seeing, you know, because 
how they publicize it at Whopper and all of that, you, you get a much better idea of, um, of what, you know, other possibilities are. And also, you know, arts management there. And a lot of the students did some earlier part of the course was student, it was um, some arts management classes. So you saw possibilities of being able to be involved in the arts without having to necessarily be a performer. And I, I, I get great thrill out of seeing students that have diversified into um, other areas of the arts and are taking the passion. And many of them say that the skills they learned while training to be performers have certainly stood them in good stead in other areas. It's certainly yeah, a, a, a tough industry. Oh, yeah. um, does it upset you when the, you, there are students who you consider have terrific talents, but the industry never really appreciates them or, or gives them that um, that opportunity um, to, to show themselves. It uh, must yes, it must I, happen a lot because it, it's it's a it, lottery. It really. Well, it is a lottery, and I and I think there's two things about that. Certainly, when you know, as far as and I departed in what two thousand, and I think one of the distinctive things about the musical theatre course through all those years was the diversity of the people in each year, the diversity of ages. While we never really, really encouraged school leavers to come in directly, we if there was seemed to be someone with particular skills and talent that we thought was ready and could cope with it, we got them in. Um, but they would then be in with people that had maybe done a bit of work in the industry or done other jobs, etc. And uh, and I think that they they just um, adapted then. You had experienced people and inexperienced people and they they get through. But because of the diversity of the types that we had in there, there were people that I thought were quite unique talents. But of course in, in Australia where you know there's not a lot of production happens. It's different in places like New York or London. But and so you you find that those really distinctive talents don't quite fit into the sort of the ensemble because they tend to stand out a bit for a whole host of reasons. Uh, and so they st- sometimes get left by the by um, because they are so distinctive and they may have, have a voice or a performance style that's very distinctive. So <clears throat> there are several over the years people that I thought, oh yes, you will find a niche and somehow because because of the uh, lack of productions, I guess, in this country, that they seem to have been left by the wayside. So I feel rather sad about that because they are quite often the people that do desperately want to be performers but you know you've got you've got people like Lara Mulcahy that's that's you know carved out quite a career for herself in there and she's been very very certain of what she wanted to do in a profile and I think those sorts of people do need to be very proactive in how they um, I guess market themselves and creating their own work yeah Miara certainly uh, an example of that, and she is, you know, as this what's the line in Funny Girl? She but be- now she belongs to the ages, <laughs> uh, and she is, and she's very highly intelligent, creative. But she she was never going to be someone that you'd pop into the chorus, you know. But she's found her way through there. So there are people that have done that. But it is here yeah, you can speculate who you think is going to get work and be and. 
you know, and it's not always the case. The musical theatre repertoire that seems to be written today and, and produced is placing incredible demands on um, on performers. I'm thinking of you know shows like Wicked with mm. that um, those huge belts that the women have to perform. I think or the phrase is uh, unprovoked belting. Yes, and the performers generally suffer great industry uh, industry great injury in um, in trying to deal with such um, demands from the school, yeah. etc. Or you've got the you know the the new genre of musical where the cast are required to play instruments mm. throughout. Yeah. yeah. So um, how, how do you see music theatre training um, accompanying those sorts of skills? Is that something we need to consider nowadays, do you think? Well, I think it was always there, but I, it's interesting that, that since I've really retired or had much more time on my hand, hands, <clears throat> I've been become very, very, very interested in sort of analysing those singing voices. And, you know, whether one likes to admit it or not, you know, all of the stuff predominantly repertoire and that is coming from the US. And from when I say Broadway, I use that in the broadest terms. But uh, there seems to be um, the desire now to have a lot of stuff that, with those high belts. But I've actually, there's singers in New York that have done a lot of Broadway stuff and I've heard them sing in other things and just seen on YouTube you see it you think and they have <clears throat> quite extraordinary soprano voices and they can belt out but what they have is a seamless voice and the other thing with the men that I've noticed is that they have the facility as the women do to bridge that between the, that, that soprano head voice into the into the belt the men are very, very skilled at using falsetto and in the same way. And and I don't think there's enough, I guess, um, put into that training of that. And at the end of the day, it's like elite sports people. It's like great pianists or cellists. It's about technique. And I think... The Americans are fairly lucky in one I'm mean, out the bat because I think the general placement of their voice is actually very forward and all of that. So I think that gives them an up. But at the end of the day, it's about not... It's about training the entire voice so that when you go to singing lessons, when you're singing, you use soprano repertoire and then you do belt and all of that and you keep the whole thing working it's not it'd be like i guess an athlete that only actually that sort of skipped legs day at the gym or something like that Mm. so you might pump pump up the top of your body but the bottom of your body just doesn't have the strength and the voice is the same thing and it doesn't happen overnight and it's not going to happen by itself and there's only one person that can really do it and that's the person themselves and i think that's the great thing but yes i think some of those um, schools that are written I mean, like the role of Avita and things like that where the testura tis- sits up there all the time is a bit crazy and also I think that if you have so much belting in a show you lose the impact of what you want the belt to achieve you know it's you know it should be there for a reason but it seems to be the thing now and unfortunately what happens with that is you get then get young people 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, who are trying to belt out these songs, you know, um, sometimes 
unsupervised or with singing teachers who don't understand it and doing irreparable damage. But I think it's, it's you know, when you read interviews with those sorts of singers, you know, um, they they talk about approaching it. I remember reading an interview with Jessie Mueller when she was do, going to do Beautiful, the Carol King thing, about how she was going to be able to do that sound and get that slight Carol King crack in the voice without damaging a voice for eight shows a week. But she approached it, you know, in technical terms and they go to voice teachers that assist them with that. So it's not like a random, I'll just do it and, you know, if I only get through five shows, tough luck. So it's it's technique. It's technique. It's the same as dancer's technique. And... You know, acting is different because while you can say, well, there's an acting technique of how you discover this, at the end of the day, it's about instincts and things. Whereas, you know, in the singing, you're either singing in tune or you're not. You're singing the correct note or you're not singing the correct note. Or dance, you're either in step or you're pointing your foot or you're not pointing your foot. So it's not subjective in that case. And if you can't do that, you know, um, then you need to work on your technique. So... But I think those all of those high belt shows, you know, they do come at a cost sometimes to to people, and I think singers themselves have to be very very careful about about those sorts of things because I think if you, you know, the the voice is such a delicate thing that I think if you do do it, damage, you know, it's there forever and a day. Mm. Um, now I know you travel a lot, so you have the opportunity to see performances overseas and uh, you know you're an avid reader of the New York Times and I know that you prowl YouTube to see what you can find mm. so who are the music theatre performers today that are impressing you you mean like uh, either locally or, or internationally yeah. um, well certainly the, the ones that I'm sort of looking at the ones I've seen <clears throat> the most of the recent times has probably been in New York and I um I have great great admiration for um, who do I think in in New York people like Stephanie J Block and Megan Hilty and Julia Murney um, uh, Jesse Mueller I think can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned um, uh, there um, and I think that there are um, and it's about their ability to vocally go anywhere because they've got the range but also they innately Americans in most cases because it's part of their heritage they and have been brought up on the great American songbook so their their connection to the early people like Gershwin Porter and all of that of course is sort of immediate because that's their musical history so they they can suss out very quickly when they're singing not only what area of the voice they're using but stylistically so you never actually hear them sing Gershwin or Cole Porter with pop hooks and you know all of those pop inflections and yet you'll hear them sing pop stuff and it's like a completely different voice and and again you you know it's it's about knowledge and it's about technique it's about knowing that and I think probably I always have been interested in the style of something so unless you're going to record something and say like and there have been cds recorded where pop singers have recorded i think there was one a gershwin done in a 
Porter one done many years ago that were raising money, I think, for AIDS and that. And there are all these pop singers that did Gershwin and Porter songs and did them in their own style. And that is fine. And some of them are fantastic. And But if you're doing a show that is connected to, that's set in a specific era and that, I think you need to know exactly what you're doing there. And you need to know how to do it with great fidelity without it sounding like you're sending it up or without a knowingness you do it with great honesty of to, as to what it is and I think um, um, I think that's a great challenge for, for, for artists too and I think but but of course you know that's something directors and, and in the singing musical directors should be bringing to it too and just not letting people get away with faking things at all like that and so that when you do go and see this type of show it's you know you think well that's you know if you're going to perform in hairspray it's going to be sung in a certain way and you know you um you probably don't want to see a classical singer in hairspray you know in any of those roles and you don't probably want you know to see betty buckley singing mozart you know it's it's just one of those one of those things of being sure of what where your skills lie and and working at it in that way but it's but it's a set of skills and you just keep adding to it and everyone should be learning everyone should be listening and admiring um you know the great artists of whatever it is and and I think in musicals too that we need to realize that <clears throat> that if you're listening to something, you don't slavishly copy the way someone does something, but but listen to the, I guess, the style of it and just know that that's what it is and not think, oh, I've got to change it for the sake of it, which is a bit what happens in quite often with productions, with directors think they want to do, they've got to put their own stamp on it. And I think sometimes some reimagination of things can work, but a lot of things I've seen... Uh, find deplorable um it this so misconceived that i just wonder why the director wanted to do that show in the first place because they seem to be trying to change so much of what it is that you would think well why wouldn't you just change why wouldn't you just do a show about contemporary things that you understand or want to do rather than try and reimagine something else uh and and, and in turn just turn it into something that it's not and, and which quite often then doesn't make any sense because you think well they seem to be terribly aggressive singing that when I don't think that that's what the lyrics of the song are or or whatever If I um, mentioned Funny Girl what's the, the song in the score which leaps out at you Funny or that uh, Oh look I think um, um, probably because it appears early on, I think the thing that sets the whole thing up, of course, is um, I'm the greatest star because she's actually setting the whole thing up. She's talking so much about herself. I mean, it's a fabulously constructed song, but it appears early on and you can see that the determination that she's she's not going to buckle under and be like everybody else. She's actually... And she's giving examples... Like She's very clearly in her mind, I think understands what is unique about her and that she's she wants to stand out so for me it's a fantastic song 
And I think an object lesson for songwriters and creators of musicals of, you know, setting all of that that's got so much information about the character uh, and her determination. And it's not just like a, what's termed an I want song. It's actually got much more information in it than that. So I can't imagine what it was like in, you know, a tiny theatre with half a dozen people and three in the band. Well, Dennis Follington, thank you for playing your part in creating some great stars on and off the Australian stage. I don't know about creating them. I well, think, you I know, think you've had an incredible position in, in, um, in music theatre education in this country and certainly, I think, have contributed in a big way. Well, thank you for that. And I was, as an ex-student, <laughs> it's very nice to see that you, you're in a very influential position now of... of um, you know, carrying the torch. Carrying the torch of, mm. of, of helping people. But at the end of the day, I think people will take on board what they want. And all you do is throw it out there. I never claim to have all the answers and give things. And then people will take what they want. They will, you know, digest it. And they maybe will put it away. And then in four years' time think, oh, I remember in that class I did this. And they will use it in that. But in the end, people, I think, make their own and decide how what they want to do, how hard they want to work and what they what their future is going to be. So all I guess we are are like in some ways crossing guards. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Pete. <laughs>